I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grilling JR, Jim Ross, the voice of wrestling. How are you, my friend? Outstanding, buddy. And I hear you came back with uh, some uh, some uh, sickly aspects of your massive, lovely frame from uh, StarCast, and I apologize for that. I hope that you're feeling better. And by God, you're here. You're here to play. It's game day, Connie. It's game day, and look where you are front of the line no days off we had a good time (laughs) right there in chicago now let's get to why we're actually here you and i both watched this show today for the first time in a long time unforgiven 2004 next week will be the 15 year anniversary gosh time flies the main event of course is what we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about uh you may remember randy orton won the world title and became the youngest world champion in history at SummerSlam. And now just one month later, he finds himself kicked out of evolution and taking on the leader of evolution, triple H in the main event. And this is going to be quite the match, but I find most interesting though, is what's happening in the first match before we get there, we should mention that Portland, Oregon, the Rose garden, it's uh, 8,313 fans before we talk about the match. Oregon has a rich history in professional wrestling. And I don't think people talk about enough. I know people hear, Oh, Dono and Oh, Roddy Piper. What can you tell us about the Portland territory? Well, it was a very viable territory that a lot of guys, uh, enjoyed working in because they had so many guys there that developed a lot of tenure. Uh, you know, uh, uh the, uh, Lynn Denton, the grappler was a lifer there pretty much. He's either, he worked in mid South, other places, but yeah, uh, Roddy and, uh, Work for Don Owen and, and Roddy did, you know, did so much, too many great things there that kind of, they put it really on the WWE radar at that point in time, in my view, uh, it was the, it, the Portland was the hub 
of the Oregon Territory. So most of those towns that were the hub, like Tulsa was to, to the rest of championship wrestling. When my first gig there in 74, Tulsa was the hub. Um, and Atlanta was the hub of the Georgia territory, et cetera, et cetera, Memphis, so forth and so on. So all those hub towns had a distinct personality, uh, a lot of great memories. I'm sure the fans, and if we ever did a show in Portland, I'm sure we'd have fans coming and, and, and contributing a lot of cool stories and material from the, uh, from a hub city. So it, it has a lot of, a lot of heritage, a lot of pride. You never, I always heard, you know, Portland wrestling was always solid. It's always, it wasn't eye rolling and, you know, we all get in the rest wrestling business with a certain amount of eye rolling involved, but Portland was a serious territory. And a lot of guys were there and made really good money. Uh, and so I, I, it was kind of cool to go to that arena because I'd heard so many guys that, that I knew in the business that at one time had had a stop off in Portland. And so, because if you made the rounds to the territories, let's put it this way. There are a lot of territories that you didn't want to go to, but there are a lot of territories that you really had as a destination. And I think it was one of those ones are on the keep list. The destination list would have been Portland because Don Owens had a real good, uh, back, uh, uh, reputation of being as fair as a promoter could be who made his living selling roll tickets. If you know what I'm saying, let's talk a little bit about the main event. Randy Orton is going to become the youngest champion in history. A lot of critics would sort of armchair quarterback that the reason they made this decision was to sort of take that accolade away from Brock Lesnar, who didn't exactly leave on the best of terms. And he becomes a bit of a transitional champion. Of course, Chris Benoit becomes world champion at summer at WrestleMania earlier that year, and then has a series of matches with triple H the story here being triple H can never beat Chris Benoit, but now Randy Orton has. And in the process of winning the title, of course, the next day on raw, very famous moment in history, triple H gives the thumbs up when everybody's celebrating and then the thumbs down, he gets kicked out of the group, sort of like horseman and sting from a decade prior, maybe two decades chat me up though. Did you buy Randy Orton as a baby face here? Or was it not so much that he was a baby face? Just he hated triple H and so did the crowd. I thought it became a personal issue after, uh, after Orton, uh, uh, stole the spotlight from his, uh, his teammates, uh, Batista flair and triple H, uh, you know, Randy was a designated, you know, he was, a, he was a shining star, a shining young star. Uh, I thought that making Randy a baby face was not the most judicious thing that could have been done. And of course the argument can be easily be made because wrestling is so subjective and casting, i.e. booking. Uh, is so subjective, uh, that he would have been just fine having a strong personal issue with triple H over the title, over the championship, the number one title in the whole business at that point in time. So, uh, I, I thought that the, that was a little bit of a knee jerk. That was Vince's call. And, uh, I, I, you know, you don't know where it's going long-term, but for Randy to be to turn baby face, major change in August. And then in September, his run is over as the champion seemed to me a little bit abrupt. Uh, and of course, as history phrases it out, you know, I don't know what Randy is now. He's, you know, 13, 14 times, whatever, 12, he's a multiple time champion. He's a first bout hall of famer without a doubt. And he was one of the guys we signed in my most outstanding signing class ever. And I have a lot of 
I am partial and now and biased for that for that for that matter. But I thought the change the, tur- the turn was a little bit quick, uh, and then I thought the <clears throat> taking the title off of him uh, was a little premature as well. He didn't get a chance to establish himself either as a babyface or as a champion in the way it was booked. Randy Orton did an interview in 2006 where he said that he thought positioning him as a babyface was tough because no one would buy it. In your, I mean, do you remember how far? I guess that sounds a little silly, but usually when you see a group pairing like this, even a tag team, Booker's the guy with the pencil usually have an expiration date for that group, whether it's the shield or anybody, eventually they're going to break up. There's going to be a personal issue. How long had a split been in the works or was it something where the timing was just right here? Do you think? I think that, uh, they just, the, the, the powers that be felt like the timing was right. Uh, I don't know that it's been a long-term plan. I, I, that's one of the issues that bites has bitten WWE in the ass over the years is the lack of long-term planning. When I first got there in 93, uh, Vince is all about long-term planning and planning WrestleMania to WrestleMania. It made the whole process better for creative, the in-house people, uh, the promoters, everybody. When you got a long-term plan, uh, there's some stability there and you're not guessing you ain't going to change things endlessly. And I think that's a, has become a, a big issue over the years. So long-term planning was not a strong suit at that point in time. So I think that's an issue that has to be addressed with any company, but I, Randy was just, Randy such a, was going to be such a star. I never thought, here's the thing, two things, I guess one is, and the most important thing is I'm not sure. And I may be wrong here, but I'm not sure that Vince at that point in time had confidence that Randy was going to be a great long-term champion. Uh, was it, he wasn't sold on the idea. He wasn't sold on, I don't know if he trusted Randy or still had some, some doubts because of his dishonorable discharge, which was an issue getting him hired. Uh, but you know, we prevailed. And it worked out pretty well for Randy and the WWE and the fans. Uh, so I think that that's, that's an issue there. Uh, the other point was, uh, uh, the fans did not totally trust Randy, that Viper thing, those eyes of his, that body English, his smile, his facials did not lend to a, in that era, get 2004 folks is 15 years ago as a trusting baby face trusted baby face. We could depend on this guy. You know, he'll be our Hogan. He'll, he, it was never that way. Randy was an individual and can we trust him? And that was kind of a shoot deal. Can we trust him? Uh, administration thing. Can we trust him with this kind of responsibility? Because there's a huge responsibility when you're, when you're the champion, you're closing most of the shows, you're your book more often than anybody else as a rule. Uh, it's a tough job for some people. So, uh, I think, I think, uh, there's a lot of, t- there's almost a, a work shoot here uh, the fans were, didn't trust Randy wholeheartedly. And Randy knew that he felt it, but I think also Vince was not overly sold that Randy was still going to be the guy at that. His maturity level in the business would make him that guy, but it wasn't time yet. So that's you, you asked the question. Well, why in the hell did they make him champion? I don't know. I guess it gave him a shine. It gave him a great rub with Rick and Hunter. Uh, and Dave was sitting in that, that percolating place too, Batista, he's just trying to get over. So, uh, the rub only goes so far, 
but I, I, I had, a, I had some doubts about that booking and I, I just didn't, uh, I still this very day, 15 years later, after I watched the show today, I, I thought, man, this is a little pre- this could have been done without making Randy a baby face. I didn't have a problem with Randy getting, getting laid to waste by three hall of fame guys. But, uh, you know, I, I thought it was a little bit of a letdown. Let me ask, I guess there's two theories here. You're, on the one hand, you could say, well, what if we went the other way and we had Randy Orton emerge as the new leader of evolution and he rallies the troops to kick triple H out and then triple H becomes the baby face. And we know that triple H has been a good guy before when he was reunited with DX with Shawn Michaels and things like that. However, I think it's fair to say, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I, w- I want your opinion on this. Triple H enjoys being a heel more than a baby face. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. As do most talents, quite frankly, Conrad. So if that's the idea that, Hey, maybe we're just going this way because our top guy, triple H really prefers to be a heel. Maybe the other reason that they would do it this way is to not have triple H beat Chris Benoit and maybe get some sort of fan backlash from them taking away sort of their, their darling. And it's okay if you try a new guy, but essentially that makes Randy Orton a bit of a transitional champion. You didn't want triple H to beat Benoit. So we'll have Randy Orton beat Benoit. And then just have triple H beat him much like maybe according to the legend, they didn't want Hulk Hogan to beat Bob Backlund. So they had the iron Sheik get the win and then Hogan mm-hmm. beat the iron Sheik. What say you, uh, I, you know, good points. All those are good points. I think, uh, uh, I think my question would be, uh, in response before I give you an answer, uh, I would say, first of all, why do we, why do we have to beat Benoit? What was wrong with Benoit as a champion? People liked him. He was overachieving 5'10 guy. Here we go, JR, starting to size again. You know, I, I mentioned the other day on the, on the, a, uh, on the AEW show uh, on Saturday in Chicago, All Out, that uh, I made a point that this one young uh, uh, athlete from China uh, was 98 pounds. That's what I said on my sheet. They, they, I was provided that information. To me, that's a story. That's a storytelling thing. I had no idea who was going over in that match, for example, but I knew that the 98 pound athlete fighting a much larger person, uh, was going to be the underdog and had to fight from quote unquote underneath to try to get over. I didn't think that I didn't think the 98 pounder was going to win. So size is a, is, is a human nature thing. So maybe that was the issue of Ben wall, but man, fans loved him for his size. I'm not so sure the office ever loved him for his size. Uh, and that's a sad commentary to even say or, or to utter because I'm not so sure why we beat Benoit. I mean, he, uh, in the, in the tag match, we're going to talk about here in a second, uh, Benoit and Regal against Flair and Batista. Benoit looked like a million bucks. He looked like a million bucks and he makes Flair tap out. So I didn't understand why we beat him in the first place. Uh, but he didn't, maybe he didn't fit the mold. And man, somewhere along the way, these cats got to learn to break those damn moles. And, and we all got to learn to tell good stories and, and stress the fact that, you know, uh, there is, there is that, uh, David and Goliath concept that's been around since the old Testament. So I, I, and I don't have a problem telling that story, but I think we all can relate to that. So, uh, but Ben, while getting beat, I didn't understand that uh, triple H triple H is a team guy. Does he, he, he does have a preference. I think he likes being a heel. I don't think he's totally comfortable. I see him on camera now as a baby face, but he's working toward that way. He's a smart guy, but most wrestlers that I know, ask Ric Flair, your father-in-law, 
they'd rather be, uh, they'd rather be a heel. It's more fun. They have more fun being a heel and they get off on getting booed and, and jeered and all those things. So, uh, but I, politics is a really strange bedfellow in pro wrestling. And, and it, unfortunately it's still around. Well, let's, uh, go through what Wade Keller wrote. There were two main reasons for the turn occurring earlier rather than later. One WWE's creative staff and mainly Vince McMahon and Hunter didn't feel it would be possible to stave off the growing fan support of Orton. He had been cheered against edge even before edge showed any heel tendencies. Orton received cheers virtually everywhere he went, no matter who he was wrestling. Management felt it was more productive to encourage the fans to cheer rather than drag it out for months to the point where the turn would have been anticlimactic. Not everyone agreed with that strategy, but the rationale was grounded in crowd reaction already. The second reason for the turn is everyone realizes business is down and most upturns in business coincide with a fresh top baby face catching on with Orton showing signs of potential to catch fire. They felt the timing to roll the dice with a quick baby face turn was right. Ratings were down heading into SummerSlam, and with Monday night football starting in September, they felt the timing was right to establish Orton as the baby face to build the raw brand. As much as everyone is a fan of Chris Benoit's strengths, there was a consensus that he didn't have the range on interviews and overall look to be the quote, next big thing. Orton, everyone agrees has that potential. What say you? Well, uh, I don't know your uh, Wade's giving you his opinion and it's an educated opinion and of which I respect, but, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't agree that uh, the, the, it's obvious the promo stuff was, uh, an issue. But it's an issue if you cast him and put him in the same kettle of fish that you put other talkers who can talk better. So why would you cast him in that role? Why would you play a person out of position? If you knew they, if, you know, like Conrad, me and you are playing football these days. I promise you, we're not going to be running backs. We're not going to be wide outs. The only thing that's going to be wide on us is our ass playing in the offensive line. That's what's going to happen. That's we'd be in position there, but he, this is a, he, that was just putting him out of position. So I, I think that's a cop out. I'm not knocking Keller. He, he's giving us an opinion and he may be right in that regard. I'm, I'm not so sure he isn't, but I, to me, it's a cop out. Benoit wasn't a WWE creation. Uh, Benoit was not brought in by Vince or Hunter is brought in by me. Uh, and, uh, with all the other radicals and I was, it's one of my proudest hirings. But not, not a damn one of them were six feet tall. And that always was, always is. And no matter what anybody says, the size and WWE is always going to be an issue until they run with somebody big time at the top that has a little bit, that is not size, uh, centric. Uh, I'll, I'll believe that when I see it. So, uh, you know, Hey, Seth Rollins is not a big guy, but he's bigger than Benoit. He's taller. And that's kind of the deal, you know, so, uh, and I'm glad that they're using Seth Rollins on top because he's not a, he's not a giant and maybe they'll give other guys a chance to do some better. And it also helps the, the uh, roster get better because it doesn't shut anybody out. that might have a chance to work on top of the card. The other thing you said earlier about the factions, factions are designed as a rule to spin somebody out, to spin out. It's like a, it's like a sitcom. With a, with an ensemble cast, you hope that somebody on that cast takes off and that they become a, a star that can, can shine alone. 
the booking theory that I learned in, in the seventies, I use it all the way through the attitude area and everywhere else. If you can get your car to be very strong, uh, uh, vertically and not just horizontally, horizontal would mean this folks. If I'm booking a card and I, and, and horizontal booking would be like a, a tag match, multiple people in a match that's horizontal booking in my, my world, uh, eight man, six man's, whatever, multiple person matches. Uh, that's a, that's a different ball game than going one-on-one and single stars have for years since, and maybe only, only a few times since, in, since the fifties and sixties have tag teams really got at the top of the card and stayed there. So most bookers like the booking, the single matches, creating single stars. And, uh, and so you're work, you're booking then on a, a horizontal basis where you got a single match, single match, single match. And I, even the old days, uh, Watts talked to me about booking. We, I, I never booked a card <clears throat> on purpose anyway, that had back-to-back tag matches on it. That was a, that was a no, no in wrestling, give the variety and tag matches are special. And you hope the teams got over. And the only way teams get all going to get over is they have, you gotta have two good teams. And they got to mean something. They can't have 50, 50 booking. We see that a lot, but nonetheless, uh, that was a situation about the factions. The, ev- uh, evolution was designed to get o- Orton and Batista over and, and spin them out of the group. So they would be able to stand on their own as single stars in WWE. And uh, quite frankly, at the end of the day, pretty much that was kind of what happened at, at the, at the end. Both Orton and Batista left and they became bigger stars. Batista, especially when he, he saved my fat ass, uh, for getting beat to bloody pulp in uh, the garden. Uh, when, uh, he helped me beat triple H sell out crowd folks. Yeah. We don't last. Yeah. Big time. But, uh, kidding. That was a part of his getting over, uh, one, one step. So that was the whole deal. This, the evolution was built Rick. Hey, look, Rick and Hunter over, they didn't need rubs and pushes and shit. They, they were over, but, uh, the two younger, younger guys, uh, were not. And that's why that, that thing was put together. And, but again, the application of how you exercise someone from those groups is always up for debate. It's always subjective. What companies would you want to work for? Just capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good companies like bank of America, which just earned the prestigious just capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What's not subjective is business is down. Uh, the numbers are coming out leading into this pay-per-view where we're showing that while revenue may be up, that's a little deceiving because you're running more pay-per-views here and more house shows than you were the prior year. Revenue is at 81.6 million, which is up from 74.7 million. And of that 6.9 million increase, 
3.9 of that is the result of two additional pay-per-views and specifically buys are down on those shows from say 77,000 buys down. Another one is, um, uh, 50,000 down. So the shows, when they're looking head to head year over year, you're getting significant losses there, but you're running two more. So that makes up the number house show attendance, similar story there. You're running 89 shows in this quarter compared to 84, the same time the prior year, but instead of 5,200 on average, you're down to 4,400, but that, you know, difference doesn't make up. You're still going to see a loss there when you see that drastic of a drop ratings also down a little bit, not a ton. But it does tell the story that things are trending down. Do you remember, you know, with, with Benoit and Guerrero at the helm, Vince feeling like, ah, oh, we've made a mistake because I mean, I know you said earlier, why would you pull it off of Benoit fans seem to like him? It does seem like there's less people going to the house shows. There's less people watching raw. There's less people buying the pay-per-views. Maybe it is time to make a change. Yeah. Our, our time to do better creative. Maybe it's time to do better booking Conrad. Uh, you know, uh, to, to say or infer for anyone to infer that this is a Benoit, uh, thing that, well, it didn't work. And he's, he's the reason the houses are down. I don't, I don't, I just don't buy into that. Uh, he was not booked like a champion. Uh, he, he performed like a champion, but it just, uh, it was, it was a failure of the, uh, of those cats that whose balls would fit into a thimble. Thimble balls. Where's our shirts? Thimble balls, uh, are, uh, they, they could have thought a little harder, but if they saw a inkling that Vince was leaning away toward Chris, the last thing most of those little insecure bastards are going to do is to challenge that. Oh, the boss don't want to go there. So let's, I ain't, I'm not going there. Uh-uh, not me, buddy. Ain't going to be me. This was ass shoot out. Uh, so, uh, that's how I looked at that thing. I, I just think it was a premature taking a belt off Benoit. It's my opinion. I and mean, it's not, it has anything to do with Randy being a good champion or Hunter being a good champion or, or whatever, nothing. It's just, there was no reason for it. And Benoit did not get established as a main event guy. Look, when Benoit came out of WCW and we hired those cats, it wasn't like they were being used on top of the card. They were, they were being used to take a lot of bumps, do a lot, do a lot of, uh, uh, you know, spot monkey type things as somebody might say. And, uh, it, it was just, uh, you know, uh, a thing where he didn't get a chance to get completely over as a main event guy as the champ. So, uh, I, I, the whole thing was, was, uh, fumbled, bumbled and stumbled uh, on that booking and it affected everybody in that regard. So the, but the bottom line of why weren't we drawing is real simple. We were not giving the fans from top to bottom, what they wanted to see simple, simple. And so then the question is that you or me or anybody else listening does do not have an answer for. So what could we have done differently? Well, we could have tried a lot of different things, but there's still no guarantee that what we're trying is going to quote unquote, get over. So bottom line, we weren't providing the product that the fans wanted to see the matchups. There were great matchups. The fans wanted to see that we did not give them. Well, what the office wants to see is the wrestlers start dressing up at the end of August. Keller would report that seven wrestlers were fined for violating the dress code, including Devon Dudley and Ray Mysterio. The way the fines work are it's $500 for the first offense, a thousand dollars for the second offense 
and unbelievably you're suspended for a third offense and management's perspective is clear. According to Wade, it's not asking too much to ask the wrestlers representing the company to dress nicely. Some wrestlers were showing up at Rena's and gold's gym t-shirts and Zubaz pants. And that's what made management make the change. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it looked like a pro pro. That's all look successful. There's a method to the madness here. I fully endorse the dress code thing. And, and the reason, and I, and look, who do you think these guys came to to bitch? You think they went to Vince's office and to bitch about not being aware of their Zubaz? No, they came to me. The issue is really simple, man. You, you, if you look, if you dress for success, if you look successful, it helps what you, it helps your skill. It helps your job. It helps your vocation. It's just, to me, it's just a real simple deal. And the, all these guys are making some great money. Take that wonderful resume you've accomplished and you've created and, and go to another walk of life to try to get the same cash. Good luck. Ain't going to happen. So embrace your job, no matter what it is, take pride in your job. And that includes just dressing like a pro. I don't think we had any, nobody, nobody said you got to come wear a coat and tie. But you, know, you wear a pair of slacks, a pair of nice jeans. It was, it was kind of loose. Just get out of the gym clothing. And, you know, everybody doesn't want to see you in a tank top every single goddamn day. We know you got big guns. We know you got a new tattoo. It's all great. But come on. Uh, use your common sense. Be, be professional. Look professional. And, therefore, you will be perceived as successful and professional. Two things to follow up on here. Wade would write. The undertaker was not following the new dress code while on tour in Australia last month. Apparently he's been given extra time to get appropriate clothing. He's told people his wife hasn't bought dress clothes for him yet. And taker has enough stature that it would be considered damaging to one's career to make an issue of undertakers, non-compliance. Agreed. Uh, you know, he, he came around, uh, but you know, he's, I would suggest Mark is probably not really easy to buy for. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I think a lot of guys just get in the habit of this is what they wear. This is what I take on the road with me. Uh, most of us have that little, those little things, but, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, I think that he's, uh, and of course they talked to Lauren Ides too, but you know, I got a lot of that cause I was still around, uh, 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 bitching about it. And I tell him, guys, come on, you're making great money. I know what they're making. I still involved the payroll. If you're making great money. Some of you're making seven figures and you're bitching about not putting on a nicer pair of pants. Come on. So uh, I, uh, but it was an issue at some points in time. And, you know, we just try to get more professional. The tardiness was not a good thing. And, uh, it never is just be at work on time. And I guarantee you, there's, there's wrestlers listening to this show right now that have heard my bullshit for years. Come to work on time. Don't be screwed up. Be straight and ready to work your ass off. Come to work on time, have an idea on how to lose, have an idea on how you can win, and then have an idea on how you can continue your, your program with whomever you're wrestling. That's simple stuff. And sometimes you get lax. And again, just remember those guys came off a hell of a run with the attitude era. Those guys were making life changing money. So, uh, they were a little complacent, uh, I think, in just my opinion. Wade would also report that the heat for a lot of this from the boys is being dumped on Michael Hayes because the belief is he is the quote unquote stooge for reporting tardiness on a strict basis to both Vince McMahon and Johnny Ace. What do you think? Would you have classified Michael Hayes as a stooge here with this issue? 
Oh, I don't know exactly what the <clears throat> the definition of a stooge is. Uh, is he mole, Larry Curly, or shimp? Uh, I, you know, I don't. Michael was Michael was certainly expressed his opinion. Uh, a valuable member of the team, but I can see some guys thinking that he was a he was not to be trusted. Uh, but they should know he's Michael's one of them. He's not the only one of your peers that you might not be able to trust when he gets into a position of power. I've seen guys get into a position of power that were former wrestlers that changed that, that changed their whole personality. And it's, it's always amazed me uh, on how that works. But, uh, uh, you know, I know Michael was very close with Johnny Ace and, and, you know, being an old school guy to politic your way to be close to the old man, probably, uh, especially when Michael had some history there of stubbing his toe a couple of times, uh, to probably, probably made sense for him. But, uh, stooge, I wouldn't go as far as say he was a stooge. I never did like that term anyway, but he, he certainly was be willing to ingratiate himself to Laurinaitis, uh, and, and of course then subsequently with Vince. Let's talk about Brock Lesnar comes out right around this time that Brock has, uh, not made the final cut with the Vikings. So he's not going to wind up on an NFL team. When you find out that he's cut, does anybody in the office say, Hey, maybe we should try to have a conversation. I know he had his heart set on football, but if that didn't work out, maybe we could figure something out. Well, you know, Conrad, when guys lose their passion for a certain thing, that's so demanding emotionally, physically, uh, as pro wrestling is, or the NFL is, or whatever, when the, when the flames flickers and you start getting bored, cause let's remember Brock was not like you and I, he was not like many of the fans are listening here today. He was not a lifelong, he wasn't a lifer with pro wrestling. Uh, he, he, he got into pro wrestling because the money simple. That's why I talked about that before he could, we could have had Brock Lesnar a year earlier if we had not kept our word. Uh, to Jay Robinson, a wrestling coach at University of Minnesota, uh, that Brock would come back and wrestle his senior year, hopefully win a national title. It would be more money to him. And I, I told him I would pay you more money if you win the national title. I don't know if I've just broken any NCAA rules, but uh, uh, he, he, he was, he'd burn out. He'd burn out. He didn't have a strong flame to start with. He, again, his flame considered or was concerning strictly the money. And so. And I, and I got, he got bored with it. He got bored with the road. He got bored, all the travel. Uh, and so he, he, he tried out for the Vikings and Hey, look, I believe he made it to the last cut. And for a guy that hadn't played football since two, a football class, two, a in South Dakota, I find that nothing short of extraordinary. Let's talk about, um, JBL Wade would, would say the locker room. Todd seems to have turned against JBL continuing to be the WWE champion wrestlers who recently justified his run as champion by pointing out how hard he works are now saying they don't have faith in him becoming a legitimate draw. The widespread feeling in the locker room is the biggest reason JBL was given the title is creative team member, Bruce Pritchard lobby for it. Pritchard along with Johnny ACE is one of the least popular people in the locker room. So, so no debating uh, the last line chat me up though. JBL was he, uh, losing confidence with the boys. You think hmm. I don't, I never sensed that. I thought John really upped his game, got better at his skill. Uh, was a John was like, a, I used to say to, to about Paul Heyman, 
you know, he's Paul was very easy to dislike as a character and John Bradshaw Layfield was very easy to dislike as a pro wrestling character as well. In other words, folks, uh, he was a good heel and he liked to play the role of the heel. He's a big physical guy. You know, he, 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 he was, uh, obnoxious, overbearing all the things you want to heal to be. He was everything that you would not want to be around. If you're a, you're going on a car trip or you're going to hang around the locker room, you're going to go to, you know, play on a team with him. He's not your kind of guy. He, and he did that on purpose. You know, John, a very, very smart guy. He got it. He really got it. So I don't know if the guys, uh, now he could be, if he got the wrong, the old proverbial wrong side of the aisle, Conrad, and he was on the side of the aisle with uh, Lauren Itis, who was not overly popular, uh, and, and Bruce, uh, and Bruce, you know, at that time was, you know, he had some, he had some steam on him, but I don't, I think this was maybe that's all we all get steam on us because we've been around so long. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't, I think, I think JVL was a good champion. Here's the thing, man. He was reliable. You could depend on him. He could have a, he could have a solid match with just about anybody. And when you go back and look at a match, for example, like JVL had with Eddie Guerrero and how, how they, how they had great chemistry and JVL was six, six and Eddie's like five, seven or five, eight, but John was not selfish and he made sure it was a contest and he took care of Eddie in that regard. But of course it's not hard to take care of Eddie Guerrero when you're working with one of the greatest workers in the entire world at that point in time. So I never felt that John was, uh, you know, some guys didn't like John, but that's, that's not unusual in any, any team. Uh, but sometimes he might get carried away with his character and get a little loud and so forth. But, uh, all in all, I thought he was a hell of a heel and, and was a very good champion. Again, you could depend on John and you could send him on a, on a interview somewhere. You could do, you could do a news interview. He could meet the mainstream press and he got himself in great shape and uh, very fundamentally sound, very basic. So I, I enjoyed John's run as a champion. Uh, but he may have been, he may have been alienated by some in some groups there, which I'm sure he could give a shit less, uh, because of his political, his affiliation with Bruce, cause they were buddies and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and Laurenitis. Well, I'm sure you guys were sleeping easy because he was your champ. Something else I found in my research here in the torch, Wade Keller reported that Steve Austin and DDP were working on a reality TV project and pitching it around town. Did you ever hear about this? What was the idea? What was the concept for a DDP and Steve Austin? I got to tell you too. That's one friendship where I'm like, I don't quite get that one, uh, <laughs> but chat me up. What was this idea behind this reality show? Well, you know, they, they were friends, they're good friends in WCW when they, neither one were considered stars. Uh, and they, they connected in that regard. Uh, I've always thought Steve felt Dallas is a entertaining to be around. And I think most people would agree with that. Uh, he's never lost for words. He's got a great, his yoga thing is doing great now, but I never heard what the exact, uh, the, I don't, I don't know what the, the concept was going to be. Uh, I'm assuming it's some sort of buddy thing. Uh, cause both guys had uh, name identity and international television. So they weren't strangers. But I'm not sure what the exact format was going to be, but we'll never know because it didn't, uh, it, it didn't get, they, it got pitched, but not picked up. Indeed. Now, Paul Heyman is also in the news. According to Wade Keller, he's, uh, he's back in creative. And once upon a time, he was the head writer for SmackDown 
and eventually he was removed in favor of Dave Lagana and Bruce Pritchard. But now since ratings and house show attendance and buy rates are down, Vince McMahon brings Paul Heyman back into the meat, back into the mix. Uh, at this point, his role isn't technically defined. He's just used as an idea, man. He's still going to remain an on-screen character for SmackDown, but now he's back in the creative process. Talk to us a little bit about the sort of hokey pokey relationship Paul Heyman had with creative and Vince McMahon in this era. Well, Paul, Paul is a brilliant guy. As many of us know, uh, I admired his brilliance for years. I enjoyed working with him as a broadcaster, traveling with him. Uh, he's very, uh, entertaining, insightful guy, uh, more often than not, he can be irreverent. Like we all can this crazy ass business. Uh, but it's funny that 15 years ago, we're talking about here. This is not the recent, uh, announcement that Paul Heyman would be, uh, you know, one of the head creative forces on raw, uh, isn't it funny how, what goes around comes around sometime. It, 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 to me, Paul Heyman should always be in the involved to some degree in the creative process of WWE. He has a great read on the people. He has a great feel for the game. Uh, he sometimes doesn't play well with others, which is probably his, one of his issues. Cause I've had the same thing happen to me where I didn't play well with others. And I, and I'm not proud of that, quite frankly, but where writers would go back to Vince or JR's a little rough on us, or, hey, you know, when we got in limo to go to the airplane, he was, he cussed us out because the show was the shits or whatever. Uh, I don't know if that actually happened, but it probably could have closely happened, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, but Paul was rough on the guys. He was in such a different stratosphere, uh, mentally and creatively that some people could not relate. And, but he has, he has, so he's in the right spot now, but he was, he was much needed at that point in time, without a doubt, uh, cause ideas are stale and Paul, the one thing about Paul that does not go along with everybody else that we've mentioned here in creative is that Paul would challenge the boss sometimes which is why he got removed from his post on multiple occasions. He didn't converse all the time and he would confront some of the time and that didn't bode well with the big Irishman. So, uh, but he's, he, Paul Heyman's a, they don't, I don't think they realize what they have with him there. I mean, he would have a hard time getting a job anywhere in the world. If he wanted to, if he wasn't in WWE, I'm not, I'm not encouraging that, but they, WWE's got to realize what he's, what he's worth. And, and, uh, and how valuable he is. I'm sure my, my, our, my, uh, our mutual agent, Barry Bloom has got it figured out. So, but Paul's a brilliant guy. You want those guys in the, in the, in the, in the, in the locker room with you. And the way you get most out of Paul is I'll always be this way. Paul and Vince should sit down and always talk ideas and, and not with other guys in the room. Cause they're going to make, they're going to roll their eyes. They're going to catch somebody not looking and make a face childish ninth grade horse shit. And, uh, but Paul's a, was a gift to that company and did a good job. And he, every time he's been a creative, he's done a good job. It just, sometimes, as I said earlier, Paul Heyman always doesn't play well with others, but who cares? One more piece of backstage news here before we get to the show, Tom Pritchard, who has worked for a talent scout as an, in a talent scout role for WWE was released around this time. And one theory given to Wade is that Johnny Ace was behind it because he's trying to move out, clean out some of the office workers that you hired 
mm-hmm. when you were a head of talent relations, because he feels like much like a head coach, he wants to put his own people in place. What do you remember about hiring Tom Pritchard and then Johnny Ace ultimately, allegedly getting rid of him? I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Well, you talk to uh, any of the talents that Tom trained, and they're going to tell you that Tom Pritchard and Dory Funk Jr. were two of the primary reasons that many of the, our transitional talents that we hired and brought in, whether it be Kurt Angle, or uh, The Rock, uh, Edge and Christian, I mean, on and on. Uh, we had that little, we had a ring set up in the warehouse at 120 Hamilton to Stanford at the TV studio. And uh, they worked out every day. We best wait. That was our, that was our NXT, so to speak. Strictly a training ground to, to, to knock the rust off some guys uh, to add something to the skill set of some of these independent guys we hired. You know, Edge and Christian were not big timers. They were, they were, they were very, very good indie wrestlers in the Ontario area. Uh, and, uh, you know, I loved them when I first saw them. There's something about them. Then I met them and I fell in love with them more because they, they're truly passionate about the business. But how many of those guys, if you talk to them, ever talk to them, uh, Conrad would tell you that Tom and junior were instrumental in getting them started. Tom is still a great teacher, seminars, coaching schools. I think he and Glenn Jacobs have a school in, in Knoxville, which is pretty cool. And he does a great job still training people. So it's not unusual for the new guy. Oh, by the way, a wrestler who finds himself into a position of power. I think we talked about that a few seconds ago. has got to have his own team. I don't, I understand that, but you don't get rid of people because they were somebody else's hire. You get rid of people because you can replace them with somebody better that makes your team better. That would be the corporate answer. Is it true? Who did they replace Tom Pritchard with us that made it better? I don't know, but, uh, that was a lot of that going on in, in, in that era. Johnny Ace should have been more concerned about signing some talents that might get over and draw some money, uh, as we did in the, in his, in the, in the, in the era before he ever got there. So, uh, and I, and I get a little burden my saddle about that deal too. You know, I, uh, you know, I brought him in and, and helped him with this. He didn't have a job. I hired him and then, uh, as slowly chipped away, you know, he was prettier than me. He was tall and blonde, had beautiful teeth and blue eyes. And Vince loves that kind of shit. And here's old JR with Bell's palsy, a Southern accent and can't smile. Okay. So what, some of us will say, well, what difference does it make? It shouldn't make any difference. But guess what? It does. So I, I, I felt bad for Tom and Tom had some issues that he had to get his arms around and he did. And, uh, but not unlike any, a lot of people. So I thought it was a, I thought it was a chicken shit firing. <laughs> 
uh, by uh, Laurinaitis. Uh, and uh, I will always believe that because Tom's ability to teach and to coach, uh, can you imagine how good Tom Pritchard would be if you were in the NXT, uh, performance center right now, oh, after, he, after he'd already taught all these other guys, right? Here's the guy that taught the rock. Here's the guy that taught Kurt Angle. Here's the guy, that, you know, well, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good on your resume. So uh, it was a political thing, ego p- politics. And look. I ran that department. Tom Pritchard was not always around Vince. Vince knew who he was because he was Bruce's brother, but he also knew what the talent said about him, but he didn't have a relationship with Tom. So when Laurinaitis decided to get rid of Tom, uh, I'm sure Vince didn't have an emotional attachment to it. And he decided to, he didn't say nothing. So there he went. So a very, it's a very unfortunate situation, quite frankly, but, uh, thank God Tom's landed on his feet. He's doing a great job now. And I guess at the end of the day, what all happened was happened for a reason. So that's the only way you can come out of this damn thing with a little bit of sanity. When this comes down the pike, how does Bruce Pritchard handle it? You know, you're you're firing his brother. Well, uh, no, Lauren, I fired him. Lauren, I fired his brother. And, uh, I was, uh, Tom was a bad one member of our, our team, our staff, uh, Bruce and Tom at that time, uh, were, were somewhat estranged. So I don't know that Bruce gave a shit one way or the other. He probably did down deep, right? But you know, they're brothers, but I think that they're, they're they seem to be getting along better nowadays, which I think is great. Uh, cause tomorrow's not guaranteed folks for any of us, but I don't think Bruce, Bruce didn't have any issue with it, uh, because there was nothing he could do about it. Right. He was smart, smart enough to know to back away from something that he could not affect, which is a good lesson for all of us. All right, let's get to the show while we're really here. Unforgiven our first match. Ric Flair and Batista are out first, and then their opponents come down. It's Chris Benoit and William Regal. As a reminder now, Chris Benoit, one month prior, was in your main event against Randy Orton for the world title. One month later, in a tag match, curtain jerk it. Mm. Well, the, the uh, aside from that, I would say is that I didn't look at the Opening match on a pay-per-view is being curtain jerking. We've talked about that before. Uh, I think it's important to set the tone uh, and to set the bar so that the talents know that if you're going to follow this, you're going to have to follow something that's good. And I thought that, quite frankly, uh, that uh, Benoit and Regal had a had a great match with with Rick and and Batista. And I think that the fact that Benoit got over with his cripple crossface uh, was smart in that regard. So they had a good match, but the, and it's kind of set the tone. It was, it had a lot of star power in it. Regal had gotten a lot of TV exposure and Regal never had a bad match with anybody, anybody. He's as good a worker as I've ever been around. And he's a great talent scout now to this very day. But, uh, I, I would, I would have guessed before the match that Regal's dropping the fall and Rick Flair dropped the fall. So a little swervy thing there. I thought it was pretty cool, but it was a good opener and, uh, Two and a half stars is Keller's uh, rating, and <clears throat> I, I thought that might be a little low, but you know it's it's close. It's no, no, I did too. I thought it was a really good match. I think it. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm still a little weird every now and again watching a Chris Benoit match, but this one was so good that I mean you got so much talent in there and a very young Batista, obviously an aging Ric Flair, but William Regal's never not been good. Yeah, I said never not. He's great as his uh, Chris Benoit. Really, really good match. Lots of typical Flair stuff, but ultimately Flair taps out uh, with a crippler crossface. 
Next up, we get a backstage skip. Trish Stratish is going to be uh, arguing with Christian here over who gets to use Tyson Tomko. And uh, Tomko is sort of in the middle. Eventually, Trish wins him over by saying, hey, if you come help me and accompany me one last time, I will, and whisper something into his ear. And when he says, sorry, Christian, and follows her, (laughs) Christian, I can't believe this is real, calls her a slut. And, uh, yeah, wow, that doesn't age well. Next up, Trish Stratus, though, is going to pin Victoria after the Stratus faction to retain the women's title. Star in a quarter, not the best match, not the worst match, but it is a reminder because even though these are two of the best workers at this time in the company, at least on the female side, the women's division has come a long, long way in the WWE, has it not? Oh, man, yeah, amazing. Uh, hats off to WWE for the, how they've uh, scouted, trained, developed the, the female side. And quite frankly, <clears throat> pardon me, I think that the female side of WWE is arguably more compelling than the male side. Now, that's not me, JR. Oh, JR's knocking all the guys at WWE. Some little dickhead will probably say that on, on Twitter or wherever, where they, wherever they can hide their and be uh, establish their anonymity. Uh, but I, I think that uh, the those two ladies had a solid match. I, I would say two stars at least. I liked the, and here's the one thing that really popped me was that uh, Victoria used a headbutt. Didn't see too many women using a headbutt. And it was so startling on the beautiful face of Trish Stratus that, you know, it, it got my attention. But uh, Victoria, by the way, she's going to be in Tulsa this week too at the Wizard World. Uh, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing her on Saturday. One of my favorites. I think she started out as one of the hoes of the Godfather. Uh, but she was a, she was really was a, a key contributor there because her and Trish are about the same skill set. Eventually they became two of our better workers in that, in that female side. Uh, but they had a lot of growing to do and they did it. So I, I, I didn't, I didn't hate that match. And I always liked Trisha's little sexuality. Uh, I think she was, she liked kind of being that bad girl sometimes, uh, as, as a character. And I thought that role fit her really, really well when she did it. Well, and Trish Stratus here is so roll tied. Uh, after this match here, Tomko is going to begin choking Victoria. And then this mystery woman runs in. This is why Tomko was here. The mystery woman is here to make the save. And the fans know who it is. They start chanting Stevie. <laughs> Tomko's tired of this, wants to solve the situation right now. And uh, yeah, Tomko strips off the dress. Reveals the big white panties over the dark men's briefs starts beating him up and yelling things like, so you want to be a woman and calling him all kinds of other names. Yeah. Bad. That was a low road. Well, that match was a low road creative. It was a low road presentation. And look, I I have been, and I am still uh, a fan of of, uh, Tyson Tomko, Travis Tomko. Uh, I love this guy. He's a good man. Uh, did a good job for us but he got booked into shit and you can't expect to be waddling and, 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 and shit folks and come out smelling like a rose, even though we were in the rose garden, ain't going to happen. Uh, at that match, it, it, it had to get negative stars in my view. Cause it just, I felt bad for both guys who really wanted to do good job. who really wanted to work hard and become something, something viable where they can make a living with some job security and that creative, uh, kicked him right in the ass. 
negative two stars is what Wade gave it. He says, this is one of the worst abominations of a segment in pay-per-view history for a number of reasons. Tomko gets the win six minutes, 20 seconds. Oof. If you're going to avoid one match this week, make sure it's that one. But I got to tell you this next match is legit. It's Chris Jericho and Christian in a lighter match with intercontinental title. We should remind everybody the intercontinental title is vacant here. Edge was the champ, but he's out with injury, which is real. So mm-hmm. in storyline, Bischoff strips him of the Intercontinental title. I don't remember watching this match back then. I'm sure I did, but I watched it again this week. I loved it. Wade gave it three stars. I thought it was much better than that. Uh, I think this era Jericho is some of the best stuff. And I've always thought Christian is one of the more underrated performers. What'd you think watching this one back for the first time in a long time? Uh, well, here a long time. Conrad, I hadn't watched this, this show back since Lawler and I did it live. And that was one of those early days as a raw pay-per-view, you know, they had the announcers up on the, up on the, uh, near the, again, near the pyro up on the stage, not one of my favorite positions to be at, because I think sometimes those that put us in those positions don't realize how much the crowd helps us as broadcasters. I'd rather be in the ringside. I want to be as close as I can get and and not get killed. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. I, I, those two guys are, they're phenomenal. And Christian never got the credit that he deserves. You know why? Because he didn't have a great body. He didn't have edges charisma, but by, he had great charisma, by the way. And he was a hell of a hand was uh, Christian. And I, of course I hired by that guy. I hired him. I'm, I'm, I was partial, but I also hired Chris Jericho, the first ever AEW champion. And they, they did a great job. You get that a lot of times, Conrad, when the two, when Canadians work with each other, at that age group, their same demographic, uh, age, all that good stuff. They, uh, they do things that they go above and beyond. And these guys in that ladder match went above and beyond. Was it as good as the young bucks and, and Lucha brothers, probably not as good as that, but it was a damn good match. And one that, you know, was one of the show seaters of that whole night. It was a great match. If you're <laughs> going to watch one from this show, go back and watch this one. Really, really good stuff. Wade didn't love it as much. He says the ladder gimmick has been overdone. Uh, this would be Chris's, uh, record breaking seventh intercontinental title win at that point. Nobody had it as often as him. You may remember they wrestled at WrestleMania and then Trish would turn on Chris to go with Christian, which led to this match. So we've had quite the feud here. Todd Grisham is going to interview later next. And she's saying she hopes Shawn Michaels destroys Kane, who by the way, I guess she's pregnant with his baby. You would remind us throughout the broadcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a real thing. Um, <laughs> Kane's going to step out and tell Lita that Eric Bischoff just made the match a no DQ. And then he forces a kiss on her for good luck. And Lawler would comment that whenever Kane goes in for a kiss, he tries to make a meal out of it, uh, <laughs> which was a great line. Oh God. Uh, so here's the storyline, I guess. Uh, there was a match or a situation in, in, in raw in August where Lita is supposed to marry Kane. She's wearing a black dress. We've got uh Kane in a white tuxedo and she has promised to marry Kane. If you beat her boyfriend, Matt Hardy at SummerSlam, she's true to her word. And she reluctantly said, I do, but of course she wishes that he burns in hell. He winds up throwing Hardy off the stage. Uh, Matt's going to be away for a little while to have knee surgery. So 
who did they bring back? But Shawn Michaels, who was also on the shelf because of a quote unquote injury from Kane, where he had attacked him after bad blood. So the feud essentially comes out of nowhere. Michaels is put into the Matt Hardy spot. It's the first time these two guys have wrestled on pay-per-view and I'm pretty fired up about it. 17 minutes and 57 seconds and an ODQ match. I didn't know what to expect, but I really enjoyed this match. And I don't know, I guess I just thought this is sort of a throwaway match, but I hadn't seen it in a long time. And even in a vacuum, really, really a good match. Three and a quarter stars. What'd you think? I loved it. I loved it. I, it proves a lot of things. First of all, uh, you know, Shawn Michaels will always be in the top one, two or three bell to bell performers ever in pro wrestling in my eyes. And of course that's a small group. There's Rick Flair is in that group. The third person is certainly subjective as well. The other two as well, as well, uh, loved it, but it shows that Kane could have a match with a very athletic, smaller guy and hold his own step for step beat for beat. So it showed Kane's abilities had improved. He had long had Dr. Yankum and the fake diesel in his rearview mirror. And he became that character and he, he, he nurtured that, that Kane TV persona, but I thought that they did, they just had a hell of a match and they, it shows you what can happen when you, when you keep the, keep things, uh, believable, realistic, and the two talents respect each other enough to not, to make sure they're not selfish and they're selling and they're, they're cooperating to have a good match for the fans sake. So my hats off to those guys. And Hey, if you just said, uh, that was a four-star match, uh, I would have had no argument whatsoever because it was really, really good. And as good as anything we had on the show that night, quite frankly. Next up, we see a backstage interview with Todd Grisham interviewing triple H who put over Orton like a million bucks, but taking credit for it saying I made Randy Orton, I'll break Randy Orton. And he says something like, um, the world title is more important than life. And you would really hammer that throughout commentary. Uh, next up, we get a tag match though. La resistance going to win over to and Rhino to retain the tag titles. Nine minutes and 35 seconds. This feels like it's just filler after a really big match with Shawn Michaels and Kane. Before we take them on this big journey with Triple H and Randy Orton, let's give them a break. And that's what this tag match was. It only gets one star. What'd you think of this one? Might have been generous on the star, uh, but I like the placement of the match. It's what we talked about earlier. If, if we had done a match after the ladder match, with Lucha brothers and the bucks and before Jericho and hangman, it might've been a little bit better presentation at the end of the day. Just guessing. Uh, I think that's what we had here. The Michaels Kane match and, and, and going into it largely because of Sean, when's the last time you saw Sean have a stinker in a pay-per-view? I yeah. never did. Yeah. Never, I, never, ever. So, you know, uh, the son of a gun is going to, he's going to open a can of whip ass as Steve Austin would say with a, Restaurant quality performance folks. And he did. So to give that last match and, and the audience a chance to breathe, it's, it's, a, it's the end of the night. Now, folks, some people got to go to the bathroom. Uh, some people want to get something to eat. Some people got to get out, stretch their legs, but you've been there a long time. So I, I think that that was a smart move in that tag match there. The crowd could settle down. They could kind of regroup and then boom, here comes the final match of the night. 
uh, with a much better table set than having to follow Michaels and Kane directly. So I, I liked it. And look, I, I always thought that I'll tell you this, you know, Rob Conway is a hell of a hand really is. He got, he was OVW guy that we brought in and he had some baggage because he was Cornette's guy and anybody that Cornette, uh, endorsed more by and large, usually got crapola. Uh, and, but I'd love, I've always, I thought to Jerry and Rhino were two of the more underrated dudes that we had on that roster. And to Jerry with those facials, he played off these so, so, uh, sober and solemn Rhino very well. Rhino's a damn good wrestler, physical, strong as a bull, and properly named. But I, I like those two guys. It's just that the tag titles were ice cold. Didn't mean shit. But it was a good place to put that match for that buffer match. Let me up. This always called that. I gotta have we gotta have a let me up match. You guys give me an idea for a let me up match. And uh, the idea was this time to let me up with La Resistance and to Jerry and Rhino. Well, nobody's getting up for the main event. Triple H is going to beat Randy Orton to capture the world heavyweight title. 24 minutes, 40 seconds. They start off kind of slow, but then it really picks up later. We saw Sean bleeding before. Now Hunter's going to bleed here after a ref bump. Flair and Batista are going to interfere. Uh, since the ref is down coach inserts himself. Coach is going to be the replacement referee. And you've got all kinds of shenanigans, uh, on to, on, uh, on the side of evolution to get the win, but what finishes him off is a pedigree onto a chair, three and a half stars and triple H is your champion. Again, I liked the match, but then it got a little convoluted with all the interference. And I don't know. I don't think it was necessary. What'd you think? I thought it was a uh, much akin to a match that bill Watts would have booked with the run-ins and stair-stepping, uh, run-ins where they express purpose to get somebody else, some, some more shine to your point. Maybe they didn't need their shine there, but let's also remember that Bautista and flair lost the first match of the night. So to get them something back in that regard, cause the evolution is still going to be a key, uh, element in the, in our plans. Uh, I think it, I think it worked out. Okay. But, uh, uh, I, I, I I don't know. I, I kind of like the, it's like Arn and Tully's thing. The other night on the AEW show, I kind of dug that and having flair and it started telling all these stories. And I, I, I liked that. I, I didn't have a problem as, on that as you did Connie, but I can see where he could have pared it down a little bit, but at the end of the day, triple H has to be helped from the ring. He's battered. He's bloody. He's bruised, but he's the champ and Orton who has been assailed, assaulted and assailed, if you will. A mugged better term, uh, by these guys, uh, was, you know, it, it was, uh, it was old school heat. How did triple A, he didn't look like the winner to me, but he was a winner. He was a champion and it certainly upset Orton. And, and, uh, I think, I think, uh, I think a lot of fans were surprised quite frankly, because you just put the title on the young guy. He just became the youngest champion ever a month ago. Now to be and clear, that, I like the story. As far as the, them dragging him back up and evolution interfering, I just thought coach running down as the ref. What the fuck is that? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, because he could take bumps, <clears throat> he, he got, he, another referee could have taken a bump. Perhaps obviously they could Earl Hebner, who was a referee in that match 
uh, got way late as we know, and he's on the outside for a, the longest of time. Uh, there's where we lose in booking. There's where we lose some of our reality and where people get, become disconnected. The goal is for us as performers, announcers, wrestlers, whatever, to suspend your disbelief where you get lost in the story, to sit back and enjoy the story. Don't overthink it. Don't jump on your phone. Don't get on your iPad and Twitter out tweet. Oh, I hated that or whatever. Come on, get, let it breathe. Let it, let it see what, see what happens. Give it a minute or two. Uh, and I think coaches out there, cause he took a big bump and I don't think you know, maybe uh, Vince didn't want, uh, other referees to get, put themselves in harm's way. So that, I think that was a reason and coach have been used to, uh, quite a bit as a heel. Uh, you know, his situation of being the announcer of raw and I don't, you know, all these stuff where he, I mean, he ends up having a match with me in Chicago and a, and a country whipping match at some point in time. So he'd been built as a heel, but I think primarily just the basic functionality of him being able to take better bumps than some of his, uh, some of the referees could, and that spot called for a big bump. Uh, and, and that's what we got. Let's mention too the next sign on raw. Flair's going to be in the center of the ring with a big cake. Introduce Triple H as the new world champion. He's going to come in to a bunch of glitter. Randy Orton jumps out of the cake and attacks Evolution, which is kind of fun. <laughs> but this is also the episode where we would see Kane fight Lita, or Kane fight uh, Snitsky. Lita, of course, is in Kane's corner. But they're going to go to a no contest when Snitsky knocks Kane onto Lita. And Lita's pregnant here. She has to be stretchered to an ambulance. And of course, this is where we get the dreaded miscarriage, which Snitsky starts saying wasn't his fault and becomes a regular on the show. Miscarriages in wrestling. Where are you at on them, Jim? Give me something. If I'm, I'm Vince, boys, give me something better than that. Give me something better than that. I don't, I don't know, man. I, Maybe this is my older age. I, I just don't know that we, that'd be like somebody coming on TV next week and having an issue with a, you know, some new wrestler come in. They're going to call him the, uh, uh, the hurricane, not, not Gregory Helms, but it made fun of the, of, of, of some situation based on the tragedies. And by the way, all the folks in the Carolinas and Virginia and all of the Eastern seaboard, God bless you guys. And be careful and listen to the, what your local medias are saying. And, and, uh, and, and just protect your family and don't be so hard headed and stubborn. You don't want to you want to vacate. I want to hunker down. I'm going to ride her out by God. I ain't afraid of mother nature. Look, mother nature and father time do no jobs and they will whip your ass. So be smart. So enough of that. Uh, but I, I just think that, uh, you know, uh, it was crass. And think of the fans out there. What if some little kid sitting there in his living room says, mama, is that, isn't that what you had? A miscarriage? You know, I don't need to explain that to my kid watching wrestling. Well, mama, what's a, what's a miscarriage? Well, it's not a girl of monsoons, a miscarriage of justice, which I, <clears throat> I loved that monsoons cliche, but uh, I don't know. I, I'm going to touch you with it, Conrad. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of talking about these tragedies like that. Personal tragedies, religion. Politics, uh, all that stuff has no place in, in the pro wrestling for God's sakes. It is pro wrestling, by the way. 
Well, we're going to be talking pro wrestling next week. I can't believe this is a real thing, but we're going all the way back to 1990. We're going to do clash of the champions mountain madness, which is fall brawl from September 5th, 1990 at the Asheville civic center in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, this is uh, an interesting show because on top we've got staying in the black scorpion. We also got Lex Luger and Ric Flair, Stan Hansen and Z-Man, Steiner Brothers and Maximum Overdrive, Susan Sexton and Bambi, the Nasty Boys are on the show, Brad Armstrong, Buddy Landell, Fabulous Freebirds, the Southern Boys. 1990 was a wild time in WCW. What do you think we might talk about with the Black Scorpion on top? Sting. Oli, Oli hated it. Oli, Oli got that thing. I'll tell you, we're great stories about how the black scorpion came about. Uh, but it includes dialogue that flair did not want to be the black scorpion that Oli booked the angle and he didn't have a finish. He didn't know that there were several black scorpions, by the way, between the inception of the angle and the blow off and, uh, and all along, I don't think that, uh, uh, you know, it was a, it was a disjointed as hell because Oli got in a pissing contest for the office, didn't care. And he, we're right in the middle of this angle. So yeah, there's a lot of good backstories, this damn thing, but all those names you mentioned, there's a lot of those names you mentioned that I had so many good stories on. I had thought about them in a long time, 1990 folks, 19, can you, that's a long time ago. So I am so excited because. I have not, the great thing about working with Conrad, there's many great things about working with Conrad, but I can tell you, man, uh, uh, going back and being, and watching these, sh- these shows back for me is a joy. It, it gives me, it even gives me confidence in my work today. You know, it wasn't that bad. So I, I that's right. You can't tell yourself, right? Uh, because you get older, you start doubting yourself a little bit from time to time. And that's can't let that safe in, man. I ain't gonna let that happen to me. So I think we're going to have a great show. I think maybe one of the more fun shows we can talk about. There's, there's a zillion Buddy Landell stories. You know, I always thought Brad Armstrong was one of the best workers I ever saw. We'll talk more about that. But you look at that, that roster. Stan the Man Hansen, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, you know, of course, the Nates. Look, this card is an all-star, all-star team. So we got a lot of good stories to talk about next week. Thursday morning, 6 a.m., Conrad. We'll be ready to rock and roll, baby. That's exactly right. After a lot of talk about more modern wrestling and WWE, we're kicking it old school with some NWA and WCW. Check us out next week, right here. Clash of the champions, 12 on grilling Jr. with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross. Hey everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of fantasy NBA today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.